Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim for Forefront Church bringing you a conversation today with Rusty Hawkins, a professor of humanities and history at Indiana Wesleyan University. He's written a whole bunch in the past on Christianity and race. Most specific to this conversation is his book from last year, The Bible Told Them So, Southern White Christians Fight Against Racial Equality. Professor Hawkins is both a Christian and a historian, and with this book, he looks specifically at how the Southern Baptist and Methodist churches in South Carolina used the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 1950s to evolve or devolve, more specifically, from an outright segregationist theology into a colorblind theology that we still see pervasive today in the church, which is equally as harmful to BIPOC citizens in this country and around the world. This is an honest conversation about a pervasive evil which is still prevalent in the church today, which has been prevalent for decades, you know, new wine in old skins basically. And Professor Hawkins is very honest about how he's trying to balance the two minds that exist inside of him. The historian who looks at the past and sees that things are not changing, and the Christian who looks towards the message of Jesus and this idea of hope and redemption, how that can come about. Really fascinating conversation. I really hope that you learn a lot from it. So without further ado, I want to present to you this conversation with Professor Rusty Hawkins. So Professor Hawkins, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I want to, you know, I, I have some questions that are sort of geared around uh, a number of things based on your expertise and your history. But most relevant to this conversation is the the last book that you've put out, uh, The Bible Told Them So how Southern evangelicals fought to preserve white supremacy. And I, I want to step back a little bit, and I guess just, uh, this is not your the first book or the first text or, or manuscript that you put out about, specifically about um, race and the church. So I'm wondering if you might just kind of start out with a little bit of background on yourself and just what had what got you interested in this topic or what was your experience like where this became kind of a topic that you really decided to like, dig into and devote your time and attention to? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, just so your listeners know, I am a, I'm a, I'm a white guy myself, and uh, I'm an American historian. And um, a, you know, a large part of my impetus for this book and for the research that I, that I undertake in general comes from a desire to try to explain my own upbringing, my own background. Um, a lot of historians joke they study what they study because they're trying to make sense of their own story. And that was certainly true with me. Um, I grew up in, in Kansas City, Kansas in uh, the 1980s. Um, I was born uh, in a part of the city that was experiencing some pretty significant white flight in the late 1970s. And uh, my parents, out of a uh, out of no political uh, ideology or um, particular uh, religious commitment, uh, decided they wanted to live in a particular part of KCK um, that white families weren't moving into in the 1970s. But for them, they wanted to be there because it was close to their church. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the church that they were attending at the time um, was was just about a, a two miles away. And so we we lived in the neighborhood we lived in. Uh, in Kansas City as a result of their desire to be close to the church. Um, mm -hmm. As a result of this, kind of just by accident, I grew up in a, a neighborhood that was racially diverse. I went to the public schools of Kansas City, um, which are racially diverse. I played on sports teams that are racially diverse. And so I had like this experience of, of having this uh, racial diversity as part of my everyday kind of normal existence. 
except for Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights at Aldersgate Free Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of then um, like this jarring of these two different worlds of, uh, of having um, these racially diverse spaces uh, and then these all white spaces. And um, uh, was coming of age then in, uh, was in high school in the 1990s when some pretty significant um, racial upheavals took place in the United States. Uh, there was the, um, the Rodney King uh, protests and that was followed by the O.J. Simpson trial. And uh, so certainly not for the first time in American history by any stretch of the imagination, but for the first time in my um, consciousness, race kind of entered then into like the larger political discourse that was happening in this country. Um, and so it was then that I was having these two different experiences, the way that we were talking about and experiencing race, say, in my high school, and then the way that we were talking about and experiencing race, say, in my church, were just completely disconnected from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, uh, for instance, then that I have this vivid memory of, um, of hearing um, a racist joke in the sanctuary of my church and just mm -hmm. not being able to make sense of how, how it was that someone could be a racist um, and be a Christian at the same time. Um, and so that was kind of like this kind of a uh, formative experience for me in terms of like trying to make sense of all that. I went off to, um, to Wheaton college in Illinois and, uh, was kind of further struck by this disconnect, um, with, with, um, white evangelicalism of which I, I you know, was very much steeped in, um, and the way in which, uh, race was talked about or, frankly, not talked about at Wheaton, um, just, again, drove me deeper into this desire to try to make sense of this. Now, I don't want to make, uh, give the impression that I had all this figured out going sure. into this. Of um, course. These are questions that would loom larger as, as, uh, as I kind of got older. Um, I knew that I wanted uh, to study history. I'd always been interested in history. Um, and I graduated from Wheaton. I went off to Montana State. I thought I wanted to be a, a historian of the American West. And so I went out West to study uh, folks like Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and, and thought that was what the future held. And my first, um, my first semester of graduate school, I took a course called The Making of Race and Nation. It was the first time in my life I was introduced to this idea that race was socially constructed mm -hmm. uh, and that it has a history, like the, the idea of race has a history. Um, and I wrote this really terrible um, paper my first semester of graduate school about um, the differences uh, between the way that Martin Luther King Jr. was accepted and Malcolm X was accepted or not accepted by white Americans because of their religious commitments. And I remember in this paper, the, the professor was like uh, asking me when I was talking about Christianity, what Christianity was I talking about? And it was like this thunderstruck moment for me that it was like, oh, Christianity uh, and different means and modes of Christianity have histories that can be studied. And so it was kind of like this, uh, this epiphany for me that, that uh, the idea that you could study the history of race, you can study the history of Christianity, and you can study the intersection of these two things and how they have shaped and been shaped by each other. Just kind of uh, um, for me was going to answer hopefully all these these experiences I had had for years at this point in terms of trying to make sense of of my people um, and why they were as as peculiar as they were about discussions and, and talks and, uh, and perspectives on race. Mm -hmm.
So I decided that if I'm going to do this, um, given the reticence that so many white evangelicals that I knew had when it came to talking about race, that I wanted to study a, a moment in, in history where they would have been forced to talk about race. Mm. This is how I, I came to, um, to study the civil rights period. I figured if they were going to be talking about it at any point, it would have been during the civil rights movement. And so sure. this was kind of like this, this book that came out um, was trying to explain what were white Christians doing mm. in, in the the, the crucible of the civil rights movement in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in the United States. Right. And you mentioned that you are a student of history, you are a historian, you have a master's in American history and a doctor in American history. You currently teach, uh, teach humanities. So I'm wondering how your expertise as a historian may inform or supplement or challenge your faith. Uh, I mean, this has been in the front of my mind ever since I listened to uh, recently an episode of The Bible for Normal People where Pete Enns was talking to a historian who approached the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And it seems like it can kind of provide a healthy, what is often needed, a healthy sense of skepticism when it comes to things like faith that are often kind of taken for granted or used sort of as a cudgel to um, impose... A, a will or an idea on other people, but how is how has the experience been like to you to approach a story or, or a faith story or a spirituality with a historian's discerning eye? Yeah, great question. Um, one of the things that historians talk about uh, in terms of historical thinking and the ways of knowing um, thinking historically, there are five C's that that historians throw around, and and two of those. Well, really, all they all come into play, but two in particular are, are really significant here. Um, the first is, is context. Uh, and so the ability to think contextually and understand things contextually within the context in which they exist um, is critically important for, for interrogating um, faith, uh, for helping you better understand principles, uh, um, teachings, practices as they would have existed within one context, uh, and then translating those and what that means for different contexts uh, centuries later. So the idea of contextualizing um, stories, contextualizing ideas, contextualizing um, 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 faith principles is, is huge. And, and, and a, historical, a historian's eye for that, I think, is, is, is helpful. The other is, um, is complexity. The idea that, that the past is something that is just very easy to understand um, is, is, uh, is problematic. And so the idea that you need to be able to approach the past with um, this idea that we're entering into something that is a foreign country, as it's often said. So you kind of have to uh, go with laying aside some of your assumptions um, mm -hmm. and, and approach the past in a way that tries to take into account the complexity of, of the past helps certainly when you're reading um, scripture, when you're reading um, different accounts of, of what's happening in the Bible um, in ways that makes it kind of tends to help you resist this idea of just taking something that's happening in the pages of scripture, um, applying them literally then to what's happening in, in your world today and saying, this is, this is how you are supposed to navigate your faith. The, uh, the idea that, that the past is complex then mm -hmm. it needs to be understood and layered in nuances is one that's uh, incredibly helpful. I think for Christians to think through. Is there a little bit of, of sort of, um, whatever the opposite of myth making is myth breaking down, uh, or breaking down of myths and, and that kind of thing. Because I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, especially with um, conversations around social justice and faith in the past few years, that there seems to be 
kind of a lifting lifting the veil off this idea that the church is the one uh, historically that has been progressing, instigating change, and instead it's sort of actually weirdly government forces which are doing this. I mean, in this book, even the kind of the inciting incident, I guess you want to call it, is the Brown versus Board of Education um, case in 1954, which ruled that school segregation was unconstitutional, which kind of got the Southern evangelicals on this path of, of how to of how to kind of preserve their way of life. It, have, have you seen that to kind of be the the case in, in well in your studies? I think to to a certain extent, yes. But this gets back to my uh, my grad school professor's questions about which which Christianity and which church. Mm. And so we can talk about we can talk about the way in which the church, if we want to use that like that that language was resistant to, for instance, um, civil rights in South Carolina, as my book details. Mm-hmm. But what I want what I, I want to make sure that, that, um, that we're aware of, and one of the things that try to impress upon my students when we're talking through and teaching these things, is that uh, we're talking about a particular branch of the church, mm-hmm. but let's not lose sight of the fact that the, 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 the folks that made the government move, uh, the folks that forced the government's hand, was a different branch of the church. And so yeah. the black church and the, and, the, and the role that it played in, in uh, instigating these changes, causing these changes to come about is critically significant. And I think perhaps offers some um, um, slivers of hope um, for those who think that the church has nothing to offer and is willing just to kind of like walk away from it and say it's, it's hopelessly corrupt. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're looking at a, at, a, at a branch of the church that um, that is that uh, does have these problems. And perhaps if we go back and look at a different branch, we can find some hope and some some inspiration uh, and, and resources for change. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, let's let's get into in, into the, the book specifically that the Bible told them so. And, and there is kind of a, a specific um, focus in this when it comes to, you know, churches in the South, but there is a specific focus kind of on South Carolina specifically um, and Southern Baptists uh, and um, Methodists as well. So can you talk about what got you into that state specifically? Um, and, you know, it kind of seems like the the denominations kind of make more sense coming from that church. But what was it about South Carolina specifically that you're like, this is this is the, the ground that I'm going to tell this story in? South Carolina, I think, is really significant in civil rights studies for, for a couple of reasons um, that are kind of larger within the field and then specifically with the topic I'm investigating. Larger than the field, South Carolina is really understudied when it comes to white resistance to the civil rights movement. So a lot of times when we think about those and, and those iconic images that we have of civil rights protests and the violence that erupted then as a result of that, we're thinking of places like Montgomery, Alabama and Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, we're thinking about Mississippi and Mississippi and Alabama, I think, just becomes these stand ins for resistance to the civil rights movement uh, within the larger popular imagination. And even within the within the uh, historiography, those have been kind of ground zero of, of mm-hmm. studying this. And I think that what what that does is then allows for um, for us to say that perhaps there's something unique about the deep south of, of Mississippi and Alabama. And perhaps outside of that, then things weren't as, as bad as, as, as they are often, uh, as we see in, in Mississippi and Alabama. So I, I wanted to find a place that was outside of, uh, of, of, of these particular, um, <laughs> these two. Uh, south Carolina gives itself the reputation of, this, of the, the place that did civil rights correctly. Uh, and so it has this, uh, has this reputation 
self-imposed reputation um, of, of places where it avoided the violence that we saw in, in Alabama and in Mississippi. And so I wanted to kind of like pick South Carolina for that reason, just because I think it's, it's, it's understudied in the field um, and has this reputation of perhaps being different. Um, by the way, that, that self-imposed reputation is not accurate. I mean, there, in a lot of <laughs> yeah. ways, there's yeah. Mm. Yeah, just, just as much violence in South Carolina as we see in Mississippi and Alabama, just not as talked about. Mm. Um, <clears throat> for my particular study, uh, the reason I also wanted to go to South Carolina um, was because we have just the majority of white residents in South Carolina identify as Baptists and Methodists. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go to a place that I could examine um, these two particular uh, denominations because just their weight in the South are, is so significant um, that, and, and the, the, the denominational polity of these two, these two denominations are so different with the Baptists being like these uh, loose independent um, churches and the Methodists having the structure that I think is important to study. So Baptists and Methodists as the two that I really want to study given their, their mass. But also within South Carolina, you have um, the highest percentage of Black Methodists who after the Civil War, um, when there was this exodus of Black Methodists from the Methodist Episcopal Church, um, they, they didn't leave. And so they're, they're part of the story um, and I wanted to see what then how Methodism within South Carolina would respond to this. And then finally, just the uh, the large number of private schools that um, were established in South Carolina after the desegregation of public schools in the late 1960s and early 1970s meant that I thought there's a significant story to tell there as well. So that's for those kind of convergence of reasons. This is why South Carolina became um, the case study for this book. But what I hope, uh, I think, and what I, I think we can take from this is that this is a case study of this larger phenomenon that's happening throughout the South, and we can extrapolate lessons from South Carolina uh, throughout the rest of the American South in these civil rights years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and some of those lessons that we can extrapolate are uh, horrifying, might not be an inaccurate term to use, certainly. Um, I, and I'm... I'm I'm wondering too if we could also step outside a little bit of even just the churches itself. I'm wondering if, based as you know, as a historian, if if there's, um, well, let me step back, listeners. If you have not read the book, I would highly recommend it. But it basically is talking about how, with the Brown versus Board of Education um, ruling in nineteen in the nineteen fifties, then um, this Southern Church kind of basically fighting against integration and how that fight became. A, a transition from segregationist theology to a colorblind theology and even um, the, the in implementation of private schooling. Myself, I am a private school, um, you know, um, alumni, I guess, if you want to call because though, though I, I'd say I, it was in the north, though I have to imagine there's really not, I mean, would you say the principle kind of remains the same? It doesn't really matter if like, you know, it's, it's a, a private school in the north or the south. The idea behind this concept was still how can we kind of keep ourselves insulated and preserved? I, I think that's right. I, I mean, I kind of, there's this, uh, um, my final chapter of the book is called focusing on the family and it, and, yeah. and this idea that you're, um, that the, the most important thing is to protect your children, um, yeah. becomes part of this story about what happens when public schools desegregate. And so while in the North, <clears throat> you, uh, sorry, while in the South, you have a very explicit uh, link between um, racial desegregation of schools and the rise of 
of, of private schools. In the North, I think the link is still there, but it kind of gets translated in time to this larger influences of secular humanism um, that we mm -hmm. see also kind of rising alongside of, of desegregated schools uh, at this point in time. But I think I think there is a, uh, a definitely this this idea is, is about um, circling the wagons, protecting your children, uh, defining how you protect your children uh, being from outside influences that you deem threatening. Um, and then the private school movement then is kind of uh, tied to that. So it gets complicated, obviously, because today, um, you know, the, the, uh, the world that we live in with education choices like everything else, I mean, it's just another choice that we have as, as consumers in this country. And so, you know, you, you make informed choices the best you can and choose to, to send your children where you choose to send them sometimes comes up, you know, Thanksgiving dinners with, with <laughs> families and things like this. I, I don't want to, don't hear me suggesting that if, if you attend a private school or you choose to, to send your child to a, a private school in, instead of a, a public school, I'm not saying that that is racially motivated. I'm not saying that makes you a racist, but I think that if, I think we need to recognize that there are certainly um, racial implications uh, mm -hmm. from where these private schools even came from. That last chapter focusing on the family, I'm sure there's a an entire generation of listeners out there who heard that and now they have PTSD just just thinking of James Dobson and the radio programs and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's it's really uh, scary because you say that you know th this idea this idea of focusing on the family of protecting the children and then stepping back to even the '60s with this idea of colorblind theology, which I think we would now call. I mean, I think we. We would at one point call them racist dog whistles. I don't know if you can call them whistles any longer because it's right out there. We can all hear what they're saying because it's not it's not hard to extrapolate from colorblind theology to these days. We had the, the recent shooting in Buffalo where the, the shooter was citing white birth rates and yeah. or the Supreme Court, um, you know, opinion with, uh, you know, citing domestic supply of infants in, in the decision to overrule a policy or a law or what have you that would you know mostly protect a a, a population of of non-whites largely for the most part um and, and like it all starts here not all of it I, i'm oversimplifying of course but starts here with this idea of like we have to protect or we have to insulate ourselves from something that they never had to confront until all of a sudden the government was telling them like you you have to confront this now and I think that if we can like work our way backward a little bit even further, so if I can explain a little bit about where this color blindness comes from, um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of really tracing the roots of this. So going back to 1954, as you mentioned earlier, Supreme Court comes out, says, all right, school segregation is unconstitutional. Um, this is then the moment. This is where my book opens is in terms of, um, so how are white Christians responding to this? And this is what the blew me away when I, when I dug into this is that, um, White Christians respond by saying that this, this dictate to integrate schools is against God's will, mm -hmm. um, that they went through the pages of scripture and they had developed um, <clears throat> in the decades after the Civil War, uh, a, a, a robust theological arguments for why the races couldn't mix. Uh, and it starts in the pages of Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation. And these folks had um, had had found scriptures that supposedly supported um, their position that the white race was created by God, the black race was created by God, 
mixing these races would be uh, going against God's plan for humanity. And so the, that's the early chapters of this book is talking about where this theological um, interpretation came from and then the implications that that theological implication had for the way that white folks resisted all the movement that was happening throughout the South uh, that we think about from 1954 until 1964. Now, eventually we know that the government comes in on the side of the black protesters, the black church, black Christians who are protesting for change and says, all right, civil 1964, civil rights law, 1965, voting rights law goes into effect and Southern society is transformed. And so you have all these folks then that have had this theology that they've been um, living with, living under for, for decades, now trying to make sense of what comes next. And what comes next then is, um, is a kind of an evolution of this theology. So if God wants you to stay uh, separate, if God doesn't want the races to mix, and yet you're living in a society that says, um, no, we are going to mix, um, to come out and, and forcibly say this violates God's will um, makes you seem bigoted, makes you seem out of touch, makes you seem like you're behind the times. And so we see this theology then uh, evolve into this notion of colorblindness. Okay, so it wasn't, not anymore by the late 1960s are we talking about God says not to mix, but what God is saying is that we shouldn't pay attention to race, so we should just be colorblind. <laughs> now, keep in mind, the book shows, I, I talk about this in the book, that these are the same people that a few years earlier were saying God doesn't want us to mix. Now, the, the, the context in which they're doing the theology has changed. They can't use those same kind of like uh, proof texting biblical arguments. And so now they're talking about how God is a God of everyone and he doesn't want us to give knowledge or give attention to these racial differences. We should all just kind of, you know, ignore race, mm -hmm. which, you know, not coincidentally would maintain segregation if we're not being intentional about integrating. So yeah. just ignore it. Just ignore the issue and it'll go away. Mm -hmm. um, don't pick it a scab. You know, all the things <laughs> that you hear about now of colorblindness what I'm trying to show in this book is that the roots of colorblindness had its had its um, start back in the, this period of segregation with people trying to figure out how to avoid um, segregating. So I do think I'm sorry, avoid integrating. So I do <clears> think that that um, that colorblindness is, is very much the story here. Um, and I wrote this book in in large part trying to help modern day evangelical Christians who were sincere, are sincere perhaps about wanting to have racial reconciliation and yet find themselves as my evangelical folks did back at Aldersgate Free Methodist Church, kind of um, inattentive to race and talking about colorblindness and thinking that's the way forward, mm -hmm. knowing that, listen, that's not going to get you anywhere. In fact, these tools that you're using were formed in this period of segregation precisely to avoid racial reconciliation, to avoid racial integration. And so if you're going to try to use colorblindness, we shouldn't be surprised when your efforts to um, to try to bring about racial healing fall fall flat. Yeah, and, and, and colorblind theology is still unfortunately kind of alive and well, though it seems like it has shifted a little bit to um, a tactic for churches to remain relevant um, in a day and age when, when things are kind of getting quite polarized. I mean, your book was released in May, 2021. Yeah. A month later, Ed Litton defeated Mike Stone to become president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and that was seen as kind of a good thing because Stone was kind of the, the far right winger. Um, but this was this also happened a month after a black minister, Dwight McKissick, removed his congregation from the Texas State Convention over the convention's repudiation of critical race theory. 
Um, and even today, Lytton is still w- with a, a Times headline that came out, what, yesterday that the Southern Baptist Convention had for years been covering up sexual abuse. Lytton is still this kind of guy that, that espouses we need to follow the will of God and keeping it in very general language. Uh, and I will I will kind of um, cite another article which was talking about your book, but that says, like, far from a repudiation of the Trump era, Lytton's election, as Hawkins suggests, is more likely just new wine and old skins. So colorblind theology, you know, this may have started in the 60s, um, hasn't really seemed to go anywhere. It, it's still something that churches are hanging on to to try and remain, it seems, relevant, I would say. Yeah, I think so. And I think maybe even to, to push a little further than that, um, one of the one of the great uh, burdens of publishing is just how long it takes something to get from manuscript <laughs> form to uh, to publication. So you noted, you know, this came out in May 2021. I fear that my conclusions were dated before they even like were released. Uh, because <laughs> I, I just could not I. I did not anticipate how quickly the conversation along race moved the direction it has within conservative um, evangelical circles. Uh, and so you mentioned earlier, like this idea of the notion of dog whistles um, and this idea of using coded language. Um, I have just been blown away over the last uh, two years, the extent to which uh, the need for dog whistles has completely even seemed to disappear and, and how comfortable uh, folks seem to be in utilizing rhetoric that a decade ago, I, uh, I people in polite companies certainly wouldn't have been uh, comfortable using. So the direction that the conversation has taken, uh, even in the last year since this book came out, um, makes me uh, less hopeful that um, there are evangelicals of um, good faith <clears throat> who talk about colorblindness in ways that um, that made me think there were true desires for reconciliation. I, I, I feel like there's this great sorting that's happening right now. And, uh, and that idea that you could talk about racial reconciliation now for so many, uh, that in itself has become some kind of um, litmus test of, uh, or shibboleth of, of critical race theory in ways that, that just... Um, are disheartening, honestly, Jim. Mm-hmm. No, I, I understand that. And, and I mean, this is, uh, you know, confronting this stuff, battling this stuff is is certainly challenging. And I mean, I'm, I'm even going to quote um, something from your book. I think I believe it was in the final chapter in which you talk about sociologists Emerson and Smith identify three components of contemporary white evangelical theology and practice that are primary contributors to the difficulty in bridging racial divides in American churches and society accountable free will individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. And, you know, you write extensively about this, but I'm just wondering if you could break down real simply what those three things are and kind of how they're manifesting in, in the sense of like, these are the challenges we're confronting when it comes to these things. Yeah. Um, so if you've not read the book Divide by Faith, I, I would encourage anyone listening to this to uh, to, to pick that book up. Um, it's so helpful in terms of explaining um, so much of the the phenomenon that we're experiencing today <clears throat> within churches and the issue of race. But the idea of uh, free will accountability, uh, individualism, um, the idea that uh, individuals are just make their own meaning or autonomous meaning making. So, the, so the, the most important thing for a, uh, for a Christian is his or her relationship with God. That's the, your individual. I mean, the, the faith itself becomes such an indiv- individualized thing. 
this is what they see as the dominant within white evangelicalism is this uh, individualism. Um, Anti-structuralism kind of related to that is this idea that white evangelical Christians have a really hard time um, accepting or even seeing that there are larger structural or systemic forces that cause people to act the way they act. So if someone um, succeeds or fails in this country, it is the direct result of their individual effort and initiative. Um, this, this belief then is, is what makes it so difficult to accept the larger structural forces that are at play. Uh, relational, yes. So this is the other part of this. So again, um, the key to everything within white evangelicalism is, is this one-on-one uh, -on -one individual relationship. So if there is a problem that exists, it's because of, of just miscommunication or, um, or bad feelings that need to be healed. And so again, this is this inattentiveness to larger systemic or structural problems that should also be addressed, that you can solve everything just on a one-on-one -on -one individualized relational uh, incident, uh, relational component. Uh, and so these are the, the three things then that Emerson and Smith find within white evangelical toolkits that makes it so difficult for them to see larger historical forces at play, um, that see them, that make it difficult for them to see larger structural issues at play, which makes it that much less likely then that true racial reconciliation and reform and equality will be brought about um, through these uh, in, uh, individualized, relational, anti-structural pushes that white evangelical Christians often bring to the table when it comes to the, the problem of race in America. I was curious about how colorblind theology sort of came about because of, of the church, capital C, Southern Baptist Convention, everyone, like it was sort of experiencing an existential crisis uh, of their own relevance or value, because even outside of the Supreme Court ruling, when it came to the 1960s, this was really kind of an era where society in general was sort of looking outside of traditional Christian norms for meaning, for value, for just even questioning things. I mean, you can talk about hippie culture and all that kind of stuff arising from the 60s, but also this is when, you know, the 60s had that Time magazine cover, you know, Is God Dead? That big black cover with those like questions that were just and, and sort of it, we were wondering, like, are we as a society moving away from really looking to Christianity as what is moving us forward into the future? This sort of seemed like it was a, an existential crisis, one that was very much needed in the life of the church, though, at that time. I'm not even sure if there's so much a question there, just as much as kind of just a thought about about colorblind theology kind of emerging as as an existential crisis, sort of like them, like sort of like, OK, we are basically the what might have seen at the time, the first throws of like we are no longer going to be relevant and people are no longer going to be looking to us as an influential force moving forward. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you now. Yeah, I think I think definitely. What you're seeing with the emergence of colorblind theology is trying to make this, um, uh, oh, this desire for racial separation that so many of the early proponents of colorblind theology um, had. How can you make this relevant now to a culture that is changing all around us? Mm -hmm. So, again, um, in a, a decade before, and if we're talking about 1957, I mean, you this is where you're seeing this explosion of sermons that are talking about ways in which, hey, look, God says right here, here's six different passages where God's talking about racial um, segregation. When the, when the country changes and now you have the Supreme Court, you have um, 
a critical mass even of, of American citizens outside the South who are saying that this, this Jim Crow style segregation is not part of our identity. When you have the larger context, the geopolitical considerations of the Cold War and, and the communist uh, menace using segregation as kind of like this, this cudgel that they keep beating um, the United States with in the eyes of the, of the developing world. Um, American culture changes as a result of all this. And, um, and, and so now you have like these same religious folks and trying to say, how can, you, how can you make this theology relevant in this new social um, context that they find themselves in? And one of the way to do it is to kind of soft pedal on this issue of race. And you mm -hmm. can do that then by talking about being colorblind. Again, um, you'd have to like read the 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 book to appreciate the extent to which this happens. But what it what they're doing is is um, at the at the very moment then when um, structures like the Method United Methodist Church is saying we're going to be intentional about doing away with the vestiges of Jim Crow that have been in our denomination and we're going to integrate. It's at this time that the, these segregationist Christians within their denomination are saying. No, to integrate is to be intentional about race, and God is not a respecter of, of races, and so we're giving privilege to one race over another race, so let's just treat everyone as being equal at the foot of the cross and not be intentional about integrating things, and lo and behold, that just maintains the status quo as it's always been, which means no integration, which makes this colorblind argument um, so useful for these segregationist Christians in the early years of the 1970s. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier um, that you you aren't exactly as hopeful when it comes to um, evangelicals and how the church has is 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 changing or not changing for 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 uh, in that matter. Um, is there anything that I mean, as a historian, as, as someone who is studying this stuff, who is writing these books, who I'm sure is engaging in conversations with with other theologians, historians, that kind of stuff. Is there anything, any trends, any kind of, anything that you're seeing which is kind of booing you up, um, filling you with hope, just kind of seeing that there is a, a change or a turning of the tide or anything, even if it's from outside of the church when it comes to confronting this topic and, and, and changing moving forward? Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I joke about sometimes wearing two different hats. So as an American historian, if I'm wearing my American historian hat, um, I don't have a lot of hope. Uh, the the story of, of of racism in America is a story of this shifting and changing ideology. It's kind of like a whack-a-mole. So it, you know you deal with it one one way and it pops up here in a different way, and and so it's it's this it's a system that that uh, that in some ways has been such a part of American society. It's hard to imagine ways in which this this goes away. So when I'm wearing my American historian hat, um, I don't I don't feel hopeful. If I can take off that hat and put on the hat um, that that I, I'm always wearing, but but I am a Christian, um, and in that, that one of the most uh, significant theological virtues is hope. And so, uh, this is something that I always uh, express with my students: is that you know, hope is an incredibly powerful thing, and and that we know that uh, that the kingdom is uh, is both not yet and already here. The kingdom of God is already broken through, and so when we when we find what the kingdom um, uh, foretells and what it uh, holds in terms of the reconciliation, not just of individuals to God, but as individuals to all people, uh, we know that the kingdom will not be thwarted. And so in that extent, 
um, that's what I think keeps me going is the, the, the theological concept of hope that it is uh, not only is it inevitable that, that the kingdom uh, will triumph, um, but also that we have responsibilities as uh, those who call ourselves Christians um, to be like the earliest Christians when they're first called that, when they're first taken that name in, in Antioch. And the thing that makes uh, Christians Christians is the fact that they're doing something so distinct and so unique in this world um, that they didn't know what else to call them except Christians. And the distinct and unique thing that they're doing in Antioch is that you have Jews and Gentiles who are worshiping together. So part and parcel of this name Christian is this idea that whatever the social divides that exist along these ideas of, of, of or these categories of identity, whatever they are, uh, from the earliest recording of the name Christian, it's Christians who are bridging those divides. And so ultimately, if we're thinking about divides that exist in our country, in our society, um, my hope is that Christians will, will recapture this, this earliest identity of, of who they are, who we are, and be those people that bridge those divides and, and, and be those ambassadors of reconciliation that we're called to be.